take your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, and uh, we're going to finish up our series out of the Gospel of Matthew today, and what a great series it has been. It's taken nearly a year to work through this wonderful telling of the kingdom of God, and uh, today as we begin, I, I'm mindful of the situations and circumstances that so many people today are facing uh, members of this fellowship who have faced COVID or who have family members who have faced COVID. COVID. We actually had the first member of our church who passed uh, because of COVID, uh, Don Aldrich. We had his funeral yesterday. And so it's just mindful. I, I'm thinking of these things. I'm thinking of the, the level of, of stress that many are, are under right now. Uh, those who have been vaccinated and then those who have not. And now employers who are demanding that you get vaccinated or you can't work uh, at that uh, uh, company any longer. And, uh, you know, just saying something about the vaccination issue. If, um, if we were living, if, if, if this atmosphere, this environment of our society, the political polarization and all that we see happening... If this were the case way back when they were giving the polio vaccination, people would have been saying, don't get vaccinated. The government is just trying to control you, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is that uh, everybody in this room has their own view of the vaccination. Many have concerns, very big concerns about vaccinating. Others have gone ahead and been vaccinated. All I'm going to tell you is that I think we need to be careful and sensitive not to look at people who get vaccinated as though they don't have faith. Um, probably just about everybody in this room received vaccinations when they were a child. I hope that didn't mean that your parents didn't have faith. I think it's more about making a decision whether you do or don't based on wisdom. And if you have certain, you know, issues, physical concerns, it might be the very best thing for you to be vaccinated. And so I just think we need to be mindful of that and be sensitive and not fall into some political camp on the matter. But let the Spirit of the living God give you wisdom in making these kinds of decisions. But it is stressful. There's stress everywhere. There's stress in the hospitals. I learned this week of someone who couldn't even call for the nurse. They tried, but the nurses didn't respond because they're overwhelmed. And there's so few of them on the floor compared to the number of cases that they're dealing with. We, we know that it's a trying time in the school system. In the public school system, this week there was a big outbreak, a fight in the first in the, on the third day of school. There's, there's just a higher level of tension. What we're going to be talking about today in the final message out of the Gospel of Matthew is God's handling of our lives when things are tense, when things look hopeless, when we feel helpless, when we feel overwhelmed, God actually laid out a plan and he resolved the issues. 
so that we don't have to just be subject to this temporal realm in this world, but we can see ourselves as spiritual beings who have been set free from sin and sickness and disease through Jesus Christ. And we can have hope when the world has no hope. We can have strength and encouragement when the world doesn't know where to turn. Because we have God, we have his word, and we have the story of all stories that was given for every human being on the earth. Jesus didn't just die so that some could be forgiven. When he died on the cross, he laid out his life, he gave his life freely, and through that death on the cross, he made it possible for every human being to be reconciled to God. Whether a person receives Christ as their Savior or not doesn't change the fact that Jesus died once for all, the Scripture says. And so we see here in verse 24, as Andrea read for us, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. The Jews accepted the blame for the execution of Jesus Christ. They, they were basically saying to Pilate, This is not on you, this is on us. We know that you have no reason to, to issue an execution for this man. So do it for us. Let it be on us. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. It was the Roman practice to scourge the subject before the crucifixion. The prisoner would be tied to a post so that his back would be, would be bent over, exposed, of course, they would take off his shirt or his, his robe so that they could expose his back. And then the Roman guard would take a leather whip embedded with bits of bone and pieces of lead. And, and the purpose of the scourging was to solve the unsolved crimes in the community. Uh, they, would, they would lay that, that whip upon the back of the prisoner. And, and as they would hit the prisoner then they would pull that across the the prisoner's back and of course it would cut into the flesh it was a very painful experience this is before this is before the crucifixion it was common that a person would actually die during the scourging it, it was also known that people would faint two three times because of the excruciating pain, simply of the scourging alone. The purpose was to resolve any unsolved crimes in the community. The idea being that if the prisoner would just confess to their crime, then the executioner applying the 39 or the 40 lashes minus one, he would apply them and each one would be softer than the one before because of the confession. So he would start, and it would hurt. And then if you would confess, each one after would be less and less and less. 
until the last of the 39 lashes would have just been to lay the whip across your back. The opposite was also true. Again, this was a way to bring out the crimes in the community. If you did not confess, then it would start with the whip across your back and more and more aggressive the executioner became until 39 lashes had been administered. Harder and harder. They always had a man standing by, a scribe, waiting for that prisoner upon each of those hard lashes to confess his, to finally confess his crime, and the scribe would write it down. And then from that point, the lashes would become softer. This was how Rome got the truth out of people. Jesus had nothing to confess. The sentence was 40 stripes. 40 is the number in the Bible for judgment. However, there would only be 39 stripes laid upon the prisoner because 39 is the number, supposedly, for mercy. That's not much mercy. And then they were taken out and placed on the cross with their hands nailed and feet tied rather than nailed. But with their hands nailed... There was no way they could shoo away the flies that would come to the open wounds on their back or the bruises and the, and the lacerations on their face. And Jesus, because he loves you and he loves me so much, he took all of that, every single ounce of pain and and. and penalty that sin brought to mankind God put on Jesus he did it because he loves us he despised the shame he endured the suffering he went to the cross in order that he might have the joy of saying to you and I you are forgiven that's what had to happen for you to be forgiven. We, we treat forgiveness so lightly. Oh, come to Jesus. He'll forgive you of your sins. Oh, okay, yeah, that sounds good. I want that, yeah. He'll forgive me of my sins. That is so far, listen, church, that's so far from the biblical doctrine of penal substitution. Jesus became sin for us. Having never sinned, he took on all of our sins. And his, the forgiveness that Christ gives us cost him his life. And for a second, you might think that the greatest thing about your salvation is your forgiveness of sins. And it certainly is that. It is forgiveness of sins. Salvation is the forgiveness of sins. But that's not the key to salvation much more than that it's also being spared from the wrath of god <laughs> the judgment that we are reading about in this text the suffering that jesus endured should have been on us remember barabbas was released barabbas should have been the one that was 
on that cross. Those two thieves on the sides of Jesus, those were more likely cohorts of Barabbas. They didn't just put common thieves on the cross. These men were insurrectionists. They had risen up against the Roman occupation. And they were going to suffer a, a very cruel punishment of death. That's what Rome does. They intimidate. They threaten. They show you what happens when you rise up against Rome. And Jesus took the place of Barabbas. But it's not just salvation that gives us forgiveness of sins or even the, releases us from the wrath of God. Listen, church, salvation is new life in Christ. What's the greatest work of salvation? It's not that your sins are forgiven. It's that God would regenerate you into a new person. See, if all I think about is the fact that Jesus forgave me of my sins, I'm still the same person, I'm just forgiven. And that would be an inaccurate picture of a biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is you dying to self and being raised new in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. You're not the same person you used to be. That's the beauty of salvation, that God could give you a new life. And that new life does not live in this world the way the old life lived. When trials come, and they will, and they are coming upon us now, and there is pressure, and there is stress, and there is death, and there is sickness, and there is disease, and there is financial woe, listen, in the new life, you can handle it because God is in you. You're not the same person, and he will see you through. This cross proves it, and the resurrection guarantees it. If God could raise Jesus from the dead, I mean, can it get any worse than death? Okay, somebody comes home, oh my goodness, I'm going to be audited, the taxes, I'm going to be audited, here comes the IRS, or oh my goodness, I came down with COVID. No, no, the worst thing is death, because after death, there ain't nothing, right? That's how the world sees it. But for a Christian, death is not the worst thing. Listen, you can either die once and then face judgment and hell, or you can die twice and face heaven. That's the options. If you die to yourself and come alive in Christ, that, that's what it means to be born again. If you allow that to happen, for God to regenerate you because you confess your sin, you believe in Jesus as God, then my friends, there is no other death. What does it matter if you physically give out? You're not dead. John Quincy Adams, he was towards the end of his life, and they said, how are you doing, John? He said, sir, John Quincy Adams is doing quite well. The house that I live in, my maker tells me, is about to give out. But I guarantee you, sir, that John Quincy Adams is doing just fine. I'm going to outlive this physical body. Praise God. And that's the life that we have now in Christ. That's the life we should be living in this world that people would see and it would point them to Jesus. 
Jesus went to the cross so you could be that kind of a Christian. So that you could be bigger than the political systems. You could be bigger than the biggest person that walks around thinking they've got life by the table. Listen, when you have Christ, you have everything you need to get through anything that comes down your path. So they took him to the cross. And he showed his love for us on that cross. Once scourged, Pilate sent him to be delivered, to be crucified. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Here he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, wearing a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. How fitting. Where do thorns come from? They come from Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, when God spoke to Adam and said, Cursed is the ground because of you. And now the ground brought forth thorns. Thorns came as a result of God's curse against men's sin. And how appropriate that God's own son, who was coming to bear the curse of sin, should wear the crown of thorns. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. Remember now, after he went before the uh, high priest, they took him out, they covered his head, and they began to slug him in the face from different directions. So he's already been pummeled and beaten. And now they take a reed to his face. In Isaiah 52, verse 14, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance, speaking of Christ on the cross, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of a children of mankind. In other words, have you ever seen a person who's been beaten severely? Huge welts, bruises, face distorted. That's what Jesus looked like. And he hasn't even been hung on the cross yet. He took every blow he took every ounce of mockery. He took the spit. And he took it for you and I. In verse 31, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Cyrene would have been an area in North Africa. Jews came from all over for Passover. And that's why this man is there in Jerusalem at this time. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, I'll just say one thing about this man from Cyrene being asked to bear the cross. When a Roman soldier would walk up to you and place his sword on your shoulder and tell you to do something, you did it. You didn't have an option. And so this man became the bearer of the cross for Christ. And then they go outside and they see this place called Golgotha. 
which means the place of a skull, that would be just outside the Damascus Gate on the northwest side of the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus was crucified just outside the city. It's actually, Golgotha is the face of a cliff, and there are, there are caves that are in that cliff. And so when you look at it, it literally looks like a skull. That's where they crucified him. And they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Matthew does not give us the full detail of the actual crucifixion. You would have to go to Luke's gospel, and you would see that in Mark and John as well. More elements of it that bring the full, complete picture. But Matthew is moving through this, and one thing he brings out is this drink that was mixed. It was a cocktail. It was made up of wine, and it was made of myrrh. Myrrh was a narcotic. It had an uh, anesthesia effect. And they offered that to Jesus. They would do that for the, the uh, subject on the cross because it would cause them to live a little longer. If you didn't feel the pain, you'd be less tra traumatized and you could last longer on the cross. Jesus would not take it. He denied it. I don't want a narcotic. I'm here to feel every ounce of suffering and pain that my heavenly Father puts on me because of the judgment against sin and the sinner. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. We've studied Matthew's Gospel and the whole thing is about the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? We're studying Jesus, the king, and his kingdom. And that we literally as Christians in this world are part of the kingdom of heaven right now. Because the righteousness and the peace and the joy of Jesus is in us. I love that. What a great thing that God would allow his son to suffer such a terrible price if that's what it takes to release us from our sinfulness. And that's what God did because of his love for us. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They didn't realize he was referring to his earthly body that he would be raised in three days. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. What an interesting statement and how true it is. He saved others. He saved others. They're indicting themselves. He saved others. Not realizing, so why is he on a cross if he saved people? In verse 43 it says, he trusted in God. They actually said, he trusted in God. That's a bad thing? That's a reason for crucifixion? What a testimony these corrupt men are giving about the true Jesus. And it's an indictment against themselves. You just confessed to condemning a man who saved others and trusted in God. Verse 42, again, he saved others, he cannot save himself. What they fail to understand is that only by not saving himself can he save others. Remember when Peter pulled his sword out in the Garden of Gethsemane and he chopped off the soldier's ear? 
And Jesus stopped him and he said, put that away, Peter. Those who take up the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize, Peter, I am in control. They're not in control. At this moment, I could call for ten legions of angels to deliver me out of their hands. But then how would the scripture be fulfilled if I did that? How could I save men from their sins? How could I redeem mankind if I deliver myself from drinking of this cup of suffering and death? Remember the night that Jesus is in that garden? Mark, I think it's Gospel of Mark that records. So Jesus is in the garden. And the soldiers and Judas and the priests and all the scribes come walking up onto the, into the garden. And they, he looked at them and Jesus said, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And immediately, all of them, they say a legion came up, a thousand, all of them fell down. At that moment, Jesus could have simply walked right past them and left the garden. They're all laid out by God's power. He didn't move. He waited for them to recover. They came, they bound him with ropes and took him away. Jesus could do whatever he chooses to do. He chose not to honor the flesh, but to honor God. So he went to the cross for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let, him, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. There they are again. They're making all these claims which are true. Here these corrupt men are, are making these statements that are true of Jesus. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. We know that at the end of this experience, one of the robbers repents of his sins and is saved. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, that would be noon. The sixth hour would be noon. The clock begins for the Jew at sunrise. That would be 6 a.m. Uh, the third hour, 9 a.m. And this is when Jesus was put on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. And at the third hour, that would be mid-morning. That's when he went to the cross. And three hours later at noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from noon until 3 in the afternoon, darkness fell on the earth. There are, on the History Channel, they'll tell you that the reason the darkness fell on the earth was because of an eclipse. And they're not being truthful and honest with you. Because the Jewish Passover always happens in a full moon. You can't have an eclipse with a full moon. It was actually God himself who manifest a miracle and darkened the sky at the death of his son. And there was darkness. And verse 46 says, And about the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus cried out was an actual record 
of a prophecy about him. Here he is on the cross, and he's crying out something that the Jews would recognize from Psalm 22, the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is trying to take them back to the Old Testament to actually see the prophecy about what they were doing to him. He's still trying to reach them to understand. In Psalm 22, oh my God, I cry by day and night, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 22, verse 2. In Psalm 22, 18, they, and by the way, that speaks of the darkness that came over. Psalm 22, 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22, 15, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. That would be like a broken piece of ceramic pot. And my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. In Psalm 22, 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. That's what happens when you hang on a cross. Eventually, your muscles give out, and your bones begin to come out of joint. They don't break, but they come out of joint. Has anybody here ever, ever uh, had a knee injury? And literally, your cartilage moves and the bone comes off to the side. Uh, this is what Jesus experienced on the cross. It's prophesied right here. In Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From this quote, Jesus gave his executioners and his followers a reference point to look up in order that he might be able to show them fully what they were doing. But with this cry, we also begin to see the agony that Jesus is experiencing. This is the end of, of six hours hanging on a cross, and all of a sudden he begins to feel separation from God the Father. From eternity past, Jesus has always been with God. And now all of a sudden, he feels separation because of the sin that he is bearing, that he is carrying. This is the bitterness of the cup that he had to drink, the effect that sin left, but now he is separated from God. Why have you forsaken me? Throughout all eternity past, never had a separation from Father, and now it's real. Verse 47, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see, uh, let, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again a second time with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In John 10, 18, it gives us a more clear picture of this moment. It says in John 10, 18, no one, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have, been, I have received from my Father. So when Jesus cried out the first time, he's crying out because he's literally experiencing the fullness, the full effect of sin in relationship to God, total separation from God, and God is pouring out judgment and wrath 
on Jesus because of that sin. And the next time he cries out, he cries out victory. He yields up his spirit. They did not kill him. He came to a point where he said, now I release my spirit from this body. He chose the time. God the Father gave him the power to do that. Luke 23, 46 records it this way. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. And immediately, behold, the curtain, verse 51, of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So the veil of the temple, which had always been there, listen, folks, a veil that was 18 inches thick. A reminder to the people when they went to temple, we cannot get to God. And the only one who can get to God in our behalf is the high priest, and that's only on one day a year where twice on that day he can go behind into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain. But when Jesus finally said, it is finished, the veil ripped from the top to the bottom. From God to man, God ripped the tent. And because of that, he was saying, now you can freely come into my throne of grace and receive help in your time of need. That's who you are today. A forgiven Christian, a Christian who has full access to God to handle every one of these problems that we're facing in this world. That's who we are. Having established this new covenant in his blood on the cross, God rips that curtain. That was a, that's the evidence that what Jesus suffered and died on the cross was sufficient to satisfy the punishment for sin. God rips the veil. And now you and I have access. In verse 51, the latter part of the verse, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Wow. So Jesus says, it's finished. I yield up my spirit. I'm giving this body away. I'm still with the Father now. And immediately, <laughs> inanimate objects begin to shake and quake. Remember when Jesus said, the rocks will cry out. The tombs also were opened. When all this is happening, the tombs start opening up. <laughs> and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they were coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. So Matthew's getting a little bit ahead of himself here because he says this happened after the resurrection. But it still fits the moment that all these inanimate things are happening. And now the tombs open up and now people are coming up with a glorified body. And they're walking the earth. And you're seeing these people that you know died. Remember what I said to you? If you receive Christ, you only die once. If you, don't if you don't receive Christ, whew, hell is waiting for you. If you receive Christ, you go to be with the Father. Amen? 
1 Thessalonians says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the shout of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Doesn't mean that they've been laying there all that time. Their spirit is with the Lord, but God's just giving them a new body. That's when we get the new body, is at the second coming of the Lord. So all of our loved ones and friends who are with the Lord in spirit, once Jesus returns, boom! All these dead people rise up in a new body. Wow! And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We need these words today. You need to remember, man, it's not about this life. It's about the life to come, and it's about the life that lies beyond death. For you, Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. It's good news for us. Paul tells us, because it says they went into the holy cities, these, these, these saints who were raised again, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, he said, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he, he uh, had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended for above all the heavens, uh, far above all the heavens, for that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and, sh and shepherds and teachers. Jesus tells us in Luke 16 that when you die, before he died on the cross, you would go to Abraham's bosom. There was a holding place for believers, those of the Old Testament, who Jesus had not died yet on the cross. Therefore, the only thing holding them was they had all those sacrifices of animals, but they couldn't completely reconcile them to God. So they were waiting for the reconciliation to come through Christ. So here in the Old Testament, you got all these saints who are in a holding place, and then the, those who did not know the Lord, they're in a holding place, but they're experiencing a little taste of hell because they're under torment. And it was the rich man who looked to Lazarus and said, please, Abraham, tell him to come over and just give me one little drop of water on my tongue because I'm in torment. And he said, he can't come to you and you can't go to him. And he said, well, then please send him back to warn my brothers I've got five brothers. They need to know about this place of torment. Right now, listen to me. Every person who died who does not know the Lord, they are in this holding place waiting for the judgment of God where they'll be sent into the lake of fire. But until then, they're in this holding place. And right now, they are remembering their loved ones who are still alive. And they're pleading, please, someone go and warn my... They're a bunch of evangelists in hell. That's the reality. It finally hits them. Everything I was taught, everything I believed in. Remember in that movie, Nacho Libre? And the, what a time to bring that up, huh? And, and, and the, the, the side character, the skinny kid, and, and he, the one guy says, have you been baptized? And he said, no, I believe in science. All those who believe in science to the extent that they don't believe in Jesus Christ, they are right now pleading that everybody on the earth who's given to an intellectual ascent in sciences, they are 
hoping that somebody will reach them with the gospel because now they know. They know. This is the reality of it. I pray that as the rains are hitting the roof outside, that the Spirit of God would fall in this place right now with conviction and that we would see the reality of our situation if we're not saved. And that we as Christians would turn back to Jesus in this time that we're living in and stop worrying like the world, but carry the hope of Christ. I've told you, if I fall out when I'm preaching and I'm gone, Please don't come up and start pumping my chest and blowing in my mouth because I can promise you the second that I'm gone, I am with the Lord. And I don't want to see the Lord and all of a sudden be pulled back into this thing called a body. I'll reach up and bust you in the mouth if you do that. I want to be with the Lord at that point. Amen? I'm looking forward to that. I don't want to go soon. I, I, I want to live as long as I can. But, but when it's my time to go, I'm thankful and happy to go. There's something better than this. And I live in that world now. I already have a piece of righteousness, a piece of joy, a piece of happiness that only Christ can give in this world. Right now in this place we live, in this time that we're living in. Praise God. I don't know if we'll get through this, but let's just finish it up. It's yeah, you can't go anywhere. It's raining. Okay. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God, capital S. Who is Jesus to you? To the pagans who saw that cross experience, the pagans said, this is the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were, th were there sitting opposite the stone or the tomb. The women were still there, faithful, hanging on, sitting by the door of the tomb. And the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive after three days i will rise i don't know why the disciples didn't remember that but but they didn't but the 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 corrupt leaders remembered what jesus said and they understood what he meant by it verse 64 therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last 
fraud will be worse than the first. So their thinking is that if we can just keep him in the tomb for three days, then we're in the clear because that's when he said he would rise. Okay, so let's just blow up his whole theory that he's going to come out of the tomb. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Uh, I like that. Just make it as, as secure as you possibly can. Uh, You've got to give them an A for effort. Make it as secure as you possibly can. Reality, there ain't nobody that's going to keep Jesus in the grave. Amen. And there ain't nobody and there ain't no disease or anything else that can rob you from your life in Christ and your future with God the Father. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. How? He's actually talking about a time of suffering when he says this. This is a prophecy about Christ. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, lo- who lives and believes in me shall never die. Build your life firmly on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else. John 14, 19, Jesus said, A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. <laughs> because I live, you also will live. Those who believe, Romans 7, or I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 37, Paul, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Christ was the conqueror. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. He conquered sin, the penalty and the power of sin, so that you could be more than a conqueror not less than a conqueror, and not the conqueror. You don't have to conquer anything. You just have to believe in the conqueror and live your life in the conqueror. Amen? Amen. Paul said, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen. Praise God. Is God not good that he loved us so much that he paid the full price for sin in our behalf? And then he goes to the cross, and then he's resurrected, proving that you and I belong to God and we have the power over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Amen. Father, thank you this morning for the love that you showed us through Jesus Christ. I love how John 
speaks of the love of God. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe upon Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It was never your intention to come and condemn the world, but that through Jesus Christ, this condemned world might be saved. Lord, if there's a person here today who is hearing the gospel for the first time, learning that Jesus, who was perfect, God who became flesh, lived a perfect life and went to the cross and died for their sins, may they reach out with faith today and believe in Jesus as the Son of God and be saved. May we as Christians with this fresh reminder, know that what you have given us, Lord, is life even though we live in this world. And this world cannot take that from us. We can live it today, we can live it tomorrow, and even after we die, we're still living it. Hallelujah. Amen.